Well, hello again, Memphis, and welcome to Storyboard 30. That moment is both everything and nothing at the same time. Because we know the outcome. I mean, the, the photo turns up in, 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 the, in the black press a week or two after the trial is concluded. And, and that photo makes a difference. I mean, it's not as big a deal as the, as the photos of, of Emmett Till himself, which had already been in circulation. But that, that photo circulates. Black man in Mississippi standing up to white power. That's a big deal. And it's graphically represented, and it, and it circulates. So, so you, you, know, you switch back and forth, right? Just the act of, of standing up and testifying as a witness, that's a big deal. And then it amounts to nothing, because the white men are exonerated. But then it is a big deal anyway, because mm -hmm. the photo circulates and, and embeds that moment in, in the public consciousness forever after. That's David Mason, our guest for today's show. And I am Mark Fleischer, your host for Storyboard 30. Today we are once again on location, talking to writer David Mason, who has given us a remarkable and original feature article called That Memphis Photographer, which now appears in issue three of our quarterly magazine. The setting, the Tallahatchie County Courthouse, the location of the 1955 Emmett Till murder trial, and the event that to this day continues to haunt us. It was the trial that saw one of the most infamous but predictable miscarriages of justice in American history when Ron Bryant and J.W. Milam, two white men of Money, Mississippi, were found not guilty by an all-white jury for the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till. The boy was in Mississippi with his mother Mamie Till Mobley, there for a family funeral in August of that year. When true to his playful nature, by accounts he innocently flirted with Bryant's wife Carolyn at Bryant's Grocery. A few days later, Brian and Milam kidnapped Emmett from his great-uncle Moe's Wright's house in the middle of the night, tortured and mutilated him, shot him in the head, and dumped his body in the Tallahatchie River, strapped to a cotton gin. From that horrific event, we have one of the most disturbing and important images of the 20th century, of Emmett Till's mutilated body in an open casket. Our interview today is not about that photo, but of another photo, the only image we have of the trial itself made by the man who captured literally millions of images of the era, that Memphis photographer, Ernest C. Weathers. And the photograph that captured Moe's Wright, Emmett Till's great-uncle, standing from his seat in the witness box, raising his hand and pointing, bravely, risking his life, and identifying the men who kidnapped and murdered his great-nephew that August night. It is the photo, and the only photo, taken during the formal trial proceedings during one week in September 1955, when dozens of journalists descended on the little town of Sumner and crammed into the packed courtroom, when photography of any kind was strictly forbidden by anyone, and especially by members of the quote-unquote Negro press, who under pressure from Judge Swango were only reluctantly allowed into the courtroom by Sumner Sheriff Clarence Strider. It was the image of the moment of the trial, a moment that a reporter from New Orleans said was, quote, the most dramatic thing I saw in my career, end quote. But in a racially charged, hostile, overcrowded, and sweltering courtroom, exactly how Withers made the photo has been a thing of lore and largely overlooked. The narrative of this lore, even in Mr. Withers' vague recollections, 
has been that he stood up in reflex and snapped the photo without anyone noticing. Today, thanks to David Mason's investigative forensic-like research and his newly published story, we can accurately theorize the greater efforts Withers went to to make the photo, with a new perspective that more clearly demonstrates the skill, strategy, and outright courage that this Memphis photographer employed, risking his own life to get the one photo that today still haunts and informs, that captures a moment when a southern black man stood up in defiance of white power, when Papa Moe's right for one moment towered over racist oppression. David, if you could um, just give me like, I'll just have I met Mr. Mason in the spring of this year, 2022. We met in the Tallahatchie County Courthouse, a stately three-story brick Gothic-style building that is the centerpiece of Sumner. A statue of a Confederate soldier still stands on the grounds lawn. We sat down for our interview at a table in what is called the well, the court. The area set aside for the defense and the prosecution teams. And we sat just about 10 feet from where the black press would have been tucked away in a little nook and with a card table against the west wall of the courtroom, right next to the spectator seating and an all-white crowd of onlookers. We started our conversation by going back to when Mr. Mason first began his journey that led to this fresh perspective. Let, let's go back. When did you first visit the, this courtroom? And, oh, I'm, yeah. yeah, it's going to be, I'm going to get the years wrong, probably. Um, it was pre-pandemic. Um, the first time I came down here was probably summer of, well, it must have been 2019, right? Because uh-huh. then the pandemic came early in 2020. So it was probably July of 2019, it's the first time I came I came down here to, to this room. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I came again uh, in September, the same year. Do you remember the moment when you were in this room when when you maybe had the photograph in your head and thought, hmm. Well, it was, it was the second trip, really. Um, the first trip, I, I, I came down here just uh, out, of, out of general interest. I was already um, uh, kind of wrapped up in, in, in researching Ernest Withers' life. And this is, you know, a significant part of that story. And somewhere after that visit in July, then I thought, well, we're coming up on September, um, which would be an anniversary. I thought maybe, maybe I'll just go down there because, um, uh, because I had some time in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll go down there and, and, and look, um, maybe I can, if it, I don't even know really what I was looking for. You know, I just thought, well, what if I'm there kind of on the anniversary of the trial? What's the room going to look like? What's the light going to be like? Um, I, I might be able to get some sense of the historical moment by being there when the, the, all the natural constellations are in alignment, right? Mm-hmm. So then it was on that second trip when I was here with a camera and looking at the space and thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> there's something, something not. So the first thing was there's something not right about the, the general narrative about how that photo was taken. Um, because I found you, you couldn't just stand somewhere and snap a photo. It didn't match. The results didn't match. Um, 
the photo that's part of the record, Withers' photo. Mm -hmm. um, so then I had to start doing some gymnastics to try to to try to find where it was that camera was. How where where could it have been in order to produce that image? Yeah, um, that sort of that perplexity developed simply from what I thought would be a straightforward matter of just standing in the courtroom and snapping. Mm -hmm. It turned out not to be that straightforward. Yeah. Before we get into that, let's also uh, set the scene in the courtroom. What, in your research, was it like? And of course, we're two white men, middle-aged white men sitting here in the courtroom. Um, but what was it like, based on your research, for an African-American journalist to be in this setting in Sumner, Mississippi, to be in this in this space. Well, I, you know, I couldn't possibly say what it was like. Um, there are the, the journalists who are here produce their own narratives, and those are the best sources for what their experience was like. Um, James Hicks, for instance, who was here writing for the Afro uh, the Baltimore Afro American newspaper, um, he wrote an account later um, in, in in which he articulates pretty clearly what his experience was. He was he was. He was ready to seize one of the many firearms that were in the space in case something that he expected to happen happened. I mean, he was, he was ready to do that and try to fight. His, these are his words, right? They tried to fight his way out of, the, out of this room. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who's really interested in the story um, really needs to examine those firsthand. Narratives from the people who are writing the story and, and experiencing it here. I, I couldn't possibly speak very well for them. As a supplement to David's story, and as reference for this podcast, we referred to the book The Race Beat, The Press, The Civil Rights Struggle, and The Awakening of a Nation, written by Gene Roberts and Hank Klibanoff. Chapter 7 of the book is devoted entirely to the Till trial and how the local and national press covered it. Summarizing and quoting from that book, we know that the town of Sumner, Mississippi was a town of only 550 people. And as the book reads, for the 500 people of Sumner, little good could come from hosting the Emmett Till trial. It was a distraction from the more important business at hand, harvesting one of the best cotton crops in many years. As they walked the streets of downtown Sumner, the reporters assigned to cover the trial were quite a sight. There were so many at least 50 reporters and photographers when the trial began, more than anyone could recall gathering in a single place in North Mississippi. On hand for the trial were four newsmen from Memphis, one from New Orleans, and one from nearby Greenville. But, as the book says, most of the Mississippi press skipped it and relied on wire services. Simeon Booker arrived from Washington from Ebony and Jet magazines. James Hicks of New York, came for the Afro-American newspapers, and there were reporters from St. Louis, Pittsburgh, and from Emmett Till's hometown of Chicago, which took an almost personal interest in the story. Also on hand were local television and radio reporters from Memphis, New Orleans, and Jackson, Mississippi. The three television networks, NBC, CBS, and ABC, turned a nearby field into a landing strip for private planes that picked up film and flew it to editing rooms and broadcast studios in New York. It was, for the small town of Sumner, Mississippi, a media circus. And as the book reads, even more startling to the residents of Sumner was the presence of Negro reporters and photographers. 
Yeah, if you read if you read the newspaper accounts, local newspaper accounts, um, white journalists writing for papers that are consumed by white readership, um, on right around in this area in Mississippi, um, folks are expressing in the newspaper some irritation that this thing has already gone on as long as it has, even before any witnesses are called. They're already you know printing in the newspaper why is everybody getting themselves all in a bunch about this thing. Even before Mose Wright stands up, this, this is going on. Right. Yeah, the, 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 the general attitude amongst the white populace down here seems to have been, let's just get this over with. Yeah. We'll deal with it the way we deal with things. And, and all you northerners and, and other folks, you can, then you can go back and stop bothering us. To have that attention on this really small community in, in Mississippi where no one has really bothered them mm -hmm. prior to this, um, in an atmosphere after Brown versus Board of Education, there had been other lynchings in the in the in the region. Um, so in 1955, there had been a few others leading up to you know the date leading up to August 1955 and September 1955 when the trial happened. Um, so to say to to your point to say it's charged is yeah, and and the local authorities aren't helping. I mean, this this one fellow, Sheriff Strider, um, he's he's swinging himself around town, um, amplifying white folks' anxiety. He's telling all sorts of fibs. There's no way around it, right? He's just lying about the terror that is going to descend on town um, from up north. He's spinning out these stories about truckloads of people from Chicago who are going to come down here and raise the town in revenge for what's going on. I mean, it's terrible. Um, mm -hmm. It's really terrible. So you're here in 2019. Um, you, you're here with your camera, taking some photos, you know, in your own way, trying to recreate the moment. And you, you say to yourself, it doesn't, how I can't recreate the I can't recreate the photo based on the traditional accounts. True. The traditional accounts being perpetuated over time by reporting by second, third, fourth, fifth hand accounts. Right. And by Mr. Withers himself. Yeah. During in later interviews. Long after the fact, yeah. Yeah. Still saying that he, he stood up. And and, and these these Account. For, I mean, for one thing, it doesn't look to me like this. The 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 moment of making the photograph is is really a significant part of this story, right? There are all sorts of other really important things about this story, and um, and so this, this matter of how he must have made this photo, yeah, you know, I don't fault anybody for not really taking that very seriously because it's kind of kind of incidental mm -hmm. um, to the bigger matters here, right? <laughs> talking about lynchings and trials and segregation and all, you know all that stuff that that's all really serious business and how how he made this photo it, it you know it makes sense to me that, that that's not really what's on everybody's mind right and and so this kind of simplified notion gets recycled over and over again when it's when it matters to mention it at all and that recycled notion is well you know withers just had this instinct when this important thing was happening and just kind of on the on the spur of the moment, on impulse, jumped up and snapped it and sat back down. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work. Uh, you talk about this in the story a little bit, but 
you know, the, the, the life and death threats to black journalists in 1955 here in Sumner were very, very real. I, men I mentioned Hicks, yeah. not only may he have had his own camera, he seems to have had a revolver, right. and he slept with it. Mm -hmm. um, the, the black press, they, they didn't have lodgings right here in town. Right. They had to go as much as an hour away, right. and anyway, in the, in the lodging that he found, he, he, slept, he slept with a firearm, yeah. and, uh, and he, he clearly felt that he, he needed to. It wasn't just a security blanket. Right. Um, and the, this, this, um, this cohort of reporters, Individually, they all account for the way that they were intimidated and terrorized um, here in the courtroom, mm -hmm. um, but also maybe in some even more disturbing ways uh, outside the courtroom, out, out in the countryside. In fact, in, in their efforts to uh, to find witnesses, um, the, the um, African American press here, they they the men, they they put themselves in disguise uh -huh. to go out and talk to people out in the countryside. They dressed themselves down mm -hmm. seriously, right. um, uh, clearly because of, of their fear of the populace that they needed to interact with in, in order to get the information that they voted for. Yeah, yeah. I've read that during the trial itself, they were in their Sunday best, but when they would uh, go out and they would go together, like you said, uh, in search of witnesses, that they dressed down in something more rumpled and. Oh yeah, the moment itself, when Withers, however he arrived at the spot where he finally got the photo, why do you think it's so important? Why is that moment and how he got to take that photo, got in the position to take that photo? Why do you feel that's so important? Well, I don't think that there's any other spot in this room it's just no other spot that's possible. Not under, not in the architectural conditions, not in the cultural conditions. Um, could any other spot in this room produce that photo? And uh, I mean, architecturally, it's interesting, um, but culturally, it's also interesting. Um, it seems to me that Withers must have spent a good portion of that Monday and Tuesday when they're selecting the jury. The jury. Mm -hmm finding that one spot that would work. That one spot, and, and you know, I don't know that he could have possibly anticipated that Mose Wright would have pointed his finger in quite that dramatic fashion. But he would have known that there were gonna be witnesses, and he could see where those witnesses were gonna be. And it seems pretty clear to me that he spent a good portion of that Monday and Tuesday Finding that one spot that would make a photo possible of anyone that would have been in the witness box. Mm -hmm. and, he, and my gum, he found it. But the, the room here, like, in a repeat um, of David's own efforts to recreate the photo, we positioned ourselves along the western wall of the courthouse. I was just looking at this position in relation to the actual photo, it's not from here. No. No, no, no. It's impossible. No. Yeah. It's in there. It's in the well. Well, probably. I mean, he couldn't have, I don't think he could have been inside the well himself. Not, 
physically. I mean, the judge basically gets to decide who sits here. Right. But he could have been, I think, trying to recreate this. Mm -hmm. I think he could have gotten his camera right here. This gate wouldn't have been here. For right. Anything. And this, this railing wasn't here either. So I think he's right here. And here, David sits on the hardwood floor, his back against the western wall of the courthouse, directing his focus toward the well where the prosecution and defense would have sat, where, in theory, Mr. Withers would have been sitting to make the photo. And he's got the camera here pointed that way. And I think that does it. Seems to me that Withers was sitting right here. He probably had camera in his lap about six inches up off of the floor and the attempts to recreate the photo don't allow for a whole lot of other options yeah so you know the, the judge had already said you can't take photos during the trial period yeah. he, he allowed 20 minutes or so on monday before they even really started formal proceedings of selecting the jury he allowed 20 minutes all right Camera people, just take your photos, and then that's it. That's done, right? Mm -hmm. So that meant that Withers wouldn't be able to just stand anywhere in the perimeter, even if he'd been allowed to stand, right? He couldn't have if he'd been allowed to stand by the judge, right? He couldn't have possibly stood and taken a photo. He had to find some... He just had to find some other secret place. Uh, look at his uh, his photos of Beale Street and the blues and and jazz. Mm. It's he's getting some of the same angles almost mm. from the floor. Mm. Yeah, he's getting he's getting the the moment and the viewpoint of the person who's there. Mm. It feels like yeah yeah. And you can say the same thing about the photo. The most right photo. The yeah. most right photo, yeah. Yeah, well, so, I mean, the, the witness box itself is elevated. And that's elevated from the well, which is also elevated from the general floor. Um, so anybody who was sitting out here looking at the witness box would have been looking up right. at Moe's right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that that's... Uh, it, Anybody who gives some attention to the way that they interact with people, if you're, you know, down low looking up, that the person with whom you're interacting um, holds a certain um, place of stature, right? It's just our, our human bodies are just wired that way. Yeah. Elevation means stature. And that's really interesting that um, for the experience of people who are sitting here, uh, there, there's no escaping the way that the architecture of the room elevates Moe's right to a position of stature. Yeah. A, a position of stature that most folks didn't want to experience that right. way, right? right? And so anyway, the photo partly captures that. Um, the, the, the grandeur of this guy who's, who's actually pretty short, right? 5'3 or 5'4 or something like that. Yeah. He's a tiny guy, but... but elevated by the architecture of the room. There's no escaping how, how that would affect this room. And, and part of that comes through the photo. Yeah. The camera itself. 
I've looked it up a million times, and now I have Crown Graphic. Thank you. Yeah. Crown Graphic. And uh, the reason that camera is so important, as you describe in the piece, uh, is because of the way in which you take the photograph, the expert knowledge that Mr. Withers would have had, had to use the camera, use this particular camera, to position the camera and the focus, and also the sound. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot that's important about that camera that, that lends it to a theory of exactly which camera must have taken that photo. Yeah. Now, you can take photos with that particular camera in several different ways, right? It, it, it ends up being technologically flexible. So, um, so he, he could adopt a number of different photo-making strategies with that one instrument. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, one or two things that he could do to, to make that instrument work to his advantage surreptitiously. Yeah. To, to uh, photographers out there, um, we're not talking about the old uh, cannons that you put in front of your eyeball. Right. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to with this one. Now, you can. In right. fact, we have a photo uh, Friday afternoon, after the verdict is delivered, there's chaos in the room, right? And, and at that point, all the photographers who are there are just free to just take a bunch of photos. And we have a photo um, from over here, shooting back this way, um, of, of Withers standing in this window right here with this camera. And he's got it up to his eye at that point. Yeah. But he doesn't have to use it that way. Right. It, it's built in a way so that you, you don't have to look through the viewfinder yeah. if you know what you're doing. And yeah. I, clearly he did. Yeah. The, the sound of the camera is important too because, you know, of course, with a room like this, here we are, there's two of us in here and you can hear everything. You can hear, you could literally hear a pin drop in this room at the moment. But with 100, 150 people in here, there would be motion, there would be chairs creaking, there would be breathing, there would probably be audible gasps or something, the moment Mo's right stands up. So in that commotion, it would also seem like Withers would have the opportune time to click the camera. Yeah, he would have he would have a lot of audio cover. Yeah, and my argument is that he wouldn't need a lot, right? Given the instrument that he had and that he knew how to use it, um, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a camera that could be set up so that it. If you set it up in a particular way, it doesn't make a lot of noise yeah. when you when you need it to actually snap open. Yeah, yeah. In the bigger context of the Emmett Till story, the trial itself, this one moment is what do you? I mean, it, when Mose Wright stands up. Oh well, actually, you know, upon a little bit of reflection. That moment is both everything and nothing at the same time. Because we know the outcome. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, that moment is everything about the trial, right? You've got this black man standing up saying, these guys did this thing and he's a proof positive witness. And, you know, Friday afternoon, the... 12 white dudes come back in and say, we find the defendants not guilty. 
So from that perspective, what Mo's right does affects nothing. Right. After the trial, though, I mean, the, the photo turns up in, 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 the, in the black press a week or two after the trial is concluded. Yeah. And, and that photo makes a difference. I mean, it's not as big a deal as the, as the photos of, of Emmett Till himself, mm -hmm. which had already been in circulation. Right. Um, but that, that photo circulates. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a black man in Mississippi standing up to white power, that's a big deal. And it's graphically represented, and it, and it circulates. So, so you, you, know, you switch back and forth, right? Just the act of, of standing up and testifying as a witness, that's a big deal. And then it amounts to nothing, because the white men are exonerated. But then it is a big deal anyway, because mm -hmm. the photo circulates, and, and embeds that moment in, in the public consciousness. Forever after. In, in addition, it's the only moment of the trial on film, period. Yeah. And it's the moment. Right. It's the moment. For Withers, again, going back to the, the traditional narrative that he, on a, uh, that, it, that there was just a moment and he just stood up and grabbed the photo. To say that, no, he, he planned for this and waited, positioned himself, asked the right questions. He strategized. Strategized. I mean, this is an expert photographer, you know, not at the peak of his powers as a photographer by any means, mm -hmm. because he's, he's about to do a lot more in, in amazing photography. That's fair. This. Right. But he's not a newbie. He's, he's 30 he's, something at this point. He's been, right. he'd been a professional photographer for a decade. Right. Yeah. So it just, it, it really just, uh, like, like I said, I'm not to put words in your mouth, but just, uh, it, it, for me as the reader, it, it just feels so important, monumentally important to how, uh, of all the moments during the entire trial, that Mr. Withers got that moment. Yeah, he, he, he knew what he was doing. Um, now, the Withers story is complicated, justifiably complicated. Um, and uh, I, I'm in, I'm in no, no position to, um, uh, to, to speak in, in Mr. Withers' defense, um, given evidence of things that he did in the mid-60s into the, into the early 70s. That's... Um, that's that's the business of you know Withers himself, who's gone, um, and 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 the people that what he did um, really affected, right? I, I'm not in yeah. that population, right? I mean, we we consider that part of Withers' life for what it is, and let's consider this part of Withers' life for what it is too. This this mid 1950s moment in which um, he demonstrated expertise and, and also a, a kind of wonderful marvelous courage there's just no way around it Mose Wright standing there in the witness box he, he knew that his life was in danger and and I think we have to acknowledge that Withers knew that his life was in danger too and he strategized to do it anyway mm -hmm. Monday and Tuesday he's getting in trouble with with the judge already uh -huh. um, uh, for for <laughs> rumors about how he's using his camera, 
that he knows going into this Wednesday morning when the, when the witnesses are called that uh, eyes are on him. Mm-hmm. And people are looking for excuses. And, you know, excuses to do what? In this context, the excuses to do what? The what here is the extreme. Mm-hmm. And, and he runs for that photo anyway. I think, I think we just have to acknowledge what, what a remarkable move that is. He captures the photo. Trial ends. Um, photographers are free to take the photos that they want. And, and Ernest Withers sells the film mm-hmm. to a wire service. I mean, consider, he, he's been in this courtroom for better part of a week. Um, and he's been in the area. He knows what's been happening in town. And what has been happening has been systematic and really serious intimidation and harassment and terrorism of anyone who's black in the area. Um, uh, he's, he's well aware of the kind of jeopardy that he's in at every moment. And, and he knows, he knows as well that officers of the law have been involved in keeping material witnesses hidden away, like spirited off and probably locked up somewhere until the course of the trial is done. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, the, the, the structure of the system here is operating against anyone who's black. And here he's got this thing, and I, he's, he's got to know that, the, 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 that, that imaging that moment matters to the future of the country, to the future of everybody, right? He knows that that matters. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, the, the, the evidence is circumstantial, but it seems to me that, that the, the, the tale that he was just inclined to make a couple bucks whenever he had an opportunity, I don't think that accounts for, for this moment. I, I think he wanted to get the film out. And I, I, I think he may have suspected that this was the, the best way to ensure that the film would actually get out. To you, David, personally, what do you what do you find so compelling about Withers, this space, this moment? Well, there's a convergence of significance here. There's a convergence of all sorts of different significances that all collapse in on each other in this pinpoint. That's something interesting to say about that photo, right? That photo ends up being a kind of pinpoint. The trial, including jury selection, takes five days. From our current perspective, we would say, well, that's not very long. It's kind of a pinpoint all by itself in comparison to the six-month trials that we're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. But still, it's you know five days of stuff, all sorts of different things happening. Most Wright's not the only witness. He's just about the only witness, but he's not the only witness. And there's arguments that are, that are presented by the prosecution, the defense, et cetera, et cetera. There's all sorts of things that happen after, after Wednesday morning. 
But because of that photo, um, or you know, maybe, uh, well, because of that photo, we all kind of experienced that trial as that one moment. I think that's appropriate um, here to 60 years down the road. Um, that image ends up being the spot at which all these various significances collapse. They, I don't know. It's, it's mm -hmm. kind of like a lens of its own, right? Where you've got all this light and all this stuff out here that kind of collapses into this focal point inside the lens, mm -hmm. which then spits it out <laughs> to be collected somehow. Um, that's kind of how that photo feels to me. Like you got a hundred different things that get focused on that one. It's both a moment in time and a moment in space because you encounter the photo when you encounter the photo as a, ge a kind of geographical object, right? It's a physical object in front of you. And, and then all of that light that is gathered into that point then kind of bursts out the other side to, to your own view through that photo. Yeah. I don't know if that really gets to your question, but I think that's the thing that sticks with me about that photo, um, about Withers' part in it, about you know all of the cultural issues that are so ugly that, that collapse in this in this space. Mm -hmm. um, they all collapse in that in the space of that photo too. Um, maybe that's why that photo sticks with me so stickily. <laughs> that was a terrible way to wind up that sentence, but that photo sticks with me. It really does. And, um, I think because of the way that it just sits at the nexus of so many things. After the trial, Uncle Mose rides so fierce for his life that he packs up his entire family, they hop on a train, and move to Chicago. Mamie Till Mobley, who would go on to become active in the civil rights movement, called the Mose Wright photo, quote, the single most significant picture of the entire trial, end quote. Later, Mamie would write, quote, it was a defiant moment that had to be preserved, even if the judge had restricted picture taking. So Ernest Withers pointed his camera very carefully, aimed it between the people in front of him, straight through the opening, Write a Papa Mose, end quote. And quoting from the 2009 book, Revolution in Black and White, Photographs of the Civil Rights Era by Ernest C. Withers. We know that Mr. Withers sold the picture that day to a wire service, and it would take him decades to reunite with the photo. But after the acquittal, Withers gathered his photos, along with those by David Jackson of Jet Magazine and Moses Newsom of the Tri-State Defender, and published them in a booklet. The booklet was called Complete Photo Story of Till Murder Case. In the booklet, Withers would write that this photo story is not an attempt to stir up racial animosities or to question the verdict of the Till Murder Case, but in the hope that this booklet might serve to help our nation dedicate itself to seeing that such incidents need not occur again. And on December 1st of the same year, 1955, Rosa Parks refuses to move from her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, saying that, quote, I thought of Emmett Till, and I just couldn't go back, end quote. You've been listening to Storyboard 30 on WIPL FM 89.3, and this has been your host, Mark Fleischer. Thanks once again to my guest, David Mason, and for his remarkable essay that preceded this interview, 
which can be found in the summer issue, issue three of Storyboard Memphis Quarterly. Thanks to the Emmett Till Interpretive Center in Sumner, Mississippi, and for their permission to record in the historic Tallahatchie County Courthouse. And thanks, as always, to producer Vance Durbin, to WYPL and the Memphis Public Libraries for their support, and to you listeners and supporters of the library, Memphis, make it a great week. <laughs>